As a result of the Munich Agreement of September 1938, Czechoslovakia ended up losing 30% of its territory, along with a third of its population and the greater part of its industry and raw materials. Few people had much faith in the country's long-term survival as a democracy amid dictatorships. Indeed, it was, as Jan Masaryk put it, an experiment in vivisection. The radio archives give a vivid picture of the consequences of that experiment, which was to last less than six months and end in occupation and eventually war. David Vaughan has been delving into those archives for the latest in his series, In Their Own Words, Voices That Shaped Czech History. On the night from the 29th to the 30th of September 1938, Britain, France, Germany and Italy signed the Munich Agreement. This gave Hitler the green light to annex all the border areas of Czechoslovakia with a majority German-speaking population. Czechoslovakia herself had not even been consulted. The impact on what was left of the country was devastating. The next day, on the 1st of October, members of the Czechoslovak government went on air to appeal for calm and explain why they felt that the country could not have resisted Germany with Soviet Russia as its only ally. One minister, Hugo Wawrecka, whose grandson Václav Havel was to become president half a century later, warned that if Czechoslovakia had chosen to resist, with Soviet support, there was even a chance that Britain and France would have changed sides completely, bolstering Hitler against the Soviet Union. In retrospect, this seems extraordinary, but it was quite consistent with the logic of the moment. The most moving recording from that day is of the Justice Minister, Ivan Derer. Derer was a tough politician, a Slovak social democrat and friend of the late President Masaryk, but he broke down in sobs, live on air, as he spoke of the impossible choice Czechoslovakia had faced. It is hard to imagine how deeply demoralizing the impact on listeners must have been. Most foreign correspondents left Prague immediately after Munich, believing Chamberlain's assurance of peace for our time. But a few stayed, to tell a story from the point of view of the country that had been sacrificed for that peace. One of them was the British journalist Jonathan Griffin. Here he is, speaking on Czechoslovak radio three days later, on the 4th of October 1938. He is damning of the agreement that has just been signed. It is a treaty that will go down to history as the worst treaty of modern times. The method of its conclusion was a barefaced and complete violation of ordinarily, universally understood justice. For the victim of this partition, Czechoslovakia, though it had made every conceivable concession in order to do away with the ostensible cause of the dispute with Germany, was not even heard in its own defence. 
Economically, too, the terms are outrageous, for they deprive Czechoslovakia of its chief raw materials and cut its main internal communications. Strategically as well as economically, the Treaty of Munich amounts to making Czechoslovakia's independence probably nominal only. In fact, nobody has dared to try to defend the agreement of Munich, except on one ground only, that it averted a war. Many people think that it did not even do that, that if instead the menaces of war had been met with firmness in support of justice, there would have been no war. German troops rolled into the Czechoslovak borderlands immediately and Hitler lost no time in following in their wake to address his new citizens. On this recording, he is in the South Moravian town of Znojmo, or Znaim in German, addressing an ecstatic crowd. I do not need to remind you that I made my decision about your future long ago, he says. Today I can tell you quite openly at 8 o'clock on the morning of the 2nd of October, we would have marched across the border, come what may. On the 5th of October, the Czechoslovak president Edvard Beneš resigned. He made a sombre announcement on the radio. Here is an extract. You know what happened, that four world powers got together, they decided on the sacrifices they demanded of us in the interest of world peace, and we were made to accept them. I do not wish today to analyse these things or to criticise them. Do not expect any recriminations from me towards any party. One day history itself will make its judgment and that judgment will be a just one. This is how Jonathan Griffin responded to Benesh's resignation. This afternoon, President Benesh resigned. He did not resign from his own wish. He did not resign at the wish of the Czechoslovak people. He resigned because of certain advice given by the new councillors forced upon Czechoslovakia by the so-called Peace of Munich. This means that Czechoslovak independence is only a name. It means that all those conscience-comforting visions conjured up lately in the Times and in the House of Commons of a Czechoslovakia stronger though smaller, happier because homogeneous, were utter nonsense if they were not something worse. You have been told by those who wanted to approve or at least allow the partition of Czechoslovakia, that the Czechoslovak people would still, within their new frontiers, be able to live in real independence. That is to say, to live, if they wanted, as a democracy among dictatorships. You see already what a hollow promise that was. This resignation of President Benesh, which was seen to you at first sight 
so much less alarming than hundreds of the events of this year is the worst of them all. It means that the ideals for which millions of Englishmen, Frenchmen and Americans died in the last great war have been effectively betrayed. And it means the beginning of a new era of tyranny, at least for all Europe and all the countries near Europe. The beginning of the end of your liberty. In the weeks that followed, the fine details of the new borders were settled, with Poland and Hungary, who at Munich had sided with Germany, also taking chunks of Czechoslovak territory. Czechoslovakia, diminished in size by her frontier territory, ceded to Germany, Hungary and Poland, has now her definite boundaries. The international broadcasts of Czechoslovak radio informed listeners of the development. Almost five million inhabitants and 10 million remain to her. She has lost about 30% of her territory and has an area today of approximately 100,000 square kilometers. The following talk, again by the British journalist Jonathan Griffin, gives a tragic picture of the atmosphere in the rump Czechoslovakia. Prague is a sad place now, but not a dangerous place, not even an uncomfortable one. Food here is plentiful and good as usual. Prices are so far pretty normal. There is not, so far, a shortage of coal. And the electric light has not been cut off. What I have found in wandering about and talking to all sorts of people is this. Everyone is determined to try and rebuild some sort of a tolerable Czechoslovakia, even though the change of frontiers has dealt frightful blows to trade, and many people expect as much as a million unemployed during the winter. Why do I tell you these particular facts? The reason is that I have just met an English friend who has just had a letter from his mother in England saying that she is very worried about him because she gathers that communications between Prague and the outside world are almost impossible and because rumours are current that Prague has little food, little coal, no light and a great deal of disorders and excesses. What is more, I'm told that the American papers are full of reports between Prague and everywhere in Czechoslovakia. There are hideous scenes of Jew-baking, so much so that many people in America talk of a boycott of Czech goods. To anyone on the spot, these reports and rumours seem just amazing. They are so completely untrue. Jonathan Griffin foresaw a domino effect resulting from Czechoslovakia's abandonment by her allies. There is real danger that Czechoslovakia, partly because economically and strategically we have reduced its independence to a name, partly also out of hatred and contempt for its so-called democratic betrayers, will turn to Germany and let itself be used against the West. There is real danger also that country after country will go the same way until there is in the whole of Europe neither the force nor the faith that could resist and halt the expansion of the regime of Dachau. This is a danger, but it is not a certainty. Here in Czechoslovakia there are two conflicting tendencies. Each is strong, and either may win. On the one hand, there is the hatred of the betrayers, the loss of faith not only in collective security, 
but in the whole philosophy of democracy taught by Masaryk and Benish. Also a certain fear and resentment of the German and Jewish refugees, and so on. That is one tendency, and one hears it in many mouths. But on the other hand, the masses of the Czech people are sane, courageous, and fundamentally democratic. These democratic ideals are felt and understood deeply by the majority of the people and by all classes. Will they be untrue to them just because France and Great Britain have been untrue to them? I do not believe so, but obviously they need encouragement. They need both a sign that they are not the only people faithful to democracy and some real chance of winning genuine independence again. It is for you to give it to them, for your sake as well as theirs. The you Jonathan Griffin is referring to is his fellow countryman in Britain. It was to be another 11 months before Britain was to answer that appeal, when it went to war in September 1939. Czechoslovakia's ambassador in London was Jan Masaryk, the son of Czechoslovakia's founder-president, Tomáš Garig Masaryk. Immediately after Munich, Jan Masaryk resigned, making his reasons only too clear. Solemn agreements are being disregarded without even an effort at a true explanation or justification. The League of Nations is laughed at with brazen cynicism. While armaments pile up higher than your tallest skyscrapers, unhappy Europe is asking, when, how, and who is the next? Jan Masaryk remained in London, and towards the end of 1938 he gave a number of talks on the American radio networks. My people, as you know, were ready to die for an ideal. Whether it was a wise readiness, I again must leave to history. But it was a glorious one. They were calm, determined, and not frightened. But European statesmen decreed otherwise. Our sacrifice was not needed or wanted, they said. We were subjected to what someone called the other day an experiment in vivisection. Masaryk continued with a plea to listeners to understand his country's plight. You will be seeing things happening in my little country, diametrically opposite to everything my father stood for and I humbly but proudly stand for today. And I beg of you to understand it. My people were terribly hurt. They were suddenly told, with very little ceremony, that they must shut up and give up. Otherwise, it was a terrible otherwise. This is another job for the historian. I am not really complaining. I am just trying to explain in simple words what went on in the heart of the simple Czech and Slovak, man and woman, who trusted their allies and their friends and quite suddenly found themselves alone, bereft and destitute in a blizzard of harshness. With the rump Czechoslovakia left at the mercy of Nazi Germany, people who happened to be Jewish felt increasingly uneasy. One of those helping people to get out of the country while borders were still open was the Englishman Nicholas Winton. In the months leading up to the outbreak of World War II, 
he saved 669 mostly Jewish children by getting them by train from Prague to Britain. I interviewed him in 2007 when he was a sprightly 98-year-old. Some of the people who arrived in Prague at that time were already two times refugees. I mean, they'd fled from Germany, from Hitler, into Sudetenland, a sanctuary. And then they fled again for sanctuary from Sudetenland into Prague. And those that hadn't got friends or relatives were just put in Nissen huts. So things were pretty grim at that time. And the work that you were doing at that time was to try and, and get these people out of Czechoslovakia. You realised the peace for our time that Chamberlain had talked about was just temporary. Was it clear to you and to the people you spoke to in, in Czechoslovakia that this situation after Munich wasn't going to last? It was only clear in so far as that is what all my left-wing colleagues felt. When you map what Hitler did in marching through Europe up to the time of uh, Sudetenland, and knowing what the position was at that time, you couldn't really feel that he was going to stop. I mean, why, why should he stop there when everything was working in his favour? It was fairly clear to us. And, of course, I was telling you, there were five committees in Czechoslovakia looking after these displaced people. Now, all of them, all these five committee, had lists of children where the parents had signed that they were willing to let their children go. Now, all those people wouldn't have wanted to let their children go unless they thought that something terrible was going to happen. Yes, because this was before even Hitler had marched into Prague in March 1939, wasn't it? Technically speaking, what remained of Czechoslovakia was still a, a free and democratic country, technically speaking, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yes. Oh, it was before Hitler marched uh, into Czechoslovakia. By the beginning of 1939, it was clear that Czechoslovakia was not going to survive as a fragment of its former self. Germany was feeding secessionist sentiment in Slovakia, and Hitler was itching to march into Prague. On the 14th of March, 1939, Slovakia unilaterally declared independence. Beneš's successor as Czechoslovak president, Emil Hacha, was summoned to Berlin. Details of his meeting with Hitler are sketchy, but it is clear that he was put under immense psychological pressure to accept a German occupation of what remained of Bohemia and Moravia. His radio announcement on his return to Prague is one of the saddest in Czech history. After a long conversation with the Reichschancellor, he said, and after considering the situation, I have decided to place forthwith the fate of the Czech nation and state with full confidence into the hands of the Führer of the German nation. That same day, German troops marched into Prague. Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was unrepentant, as we hear in an after-dinner speech he gave two days later, on the 17th of March, 1939. I have no need to defend my visits to Germany last autumn. For, ladies and gentlemen, what was the alternative? Nothing that we could have done? 
Nothing that France could have done or Russia could have done could possibly have saved Czechoslovakia from invasion and destruction. And even if we had subsequently gone to war to punish Germany for her action, and if after the frightful losses which would have been inflicted upon all the partakers in that war, we had been victorious in the end, never could we have reconstructed Czechoslovakia as she was framed by the Treaty of Versailles. Neville Chamberlain, ending that edition of In Their Own Words, Voices That Shape Czech History by David Vaughan. You can find several more editions on our website or receive the whole series as a podcast, which you can sign up to wherever you get your podcasts. But that's all for now. From me, Ian Willoughby, and all of us here at Radio Prague International, thank you so much for listening and goodbye.